You are listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host, Liz MacArthur, and joining me in the studio today is Adam Gray, who's doing a master's in mechanical engineering. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you say that the, the name of your project is a little more complicated than master's in mechanical engineering. Um, yeah, so right now I'm uh, in the final stages of writing up the thesis, and so it's a working title, but something along the lines of uh, user-constrained algorithms for demand response control of aggregate residential appliances under limited information. Whoa. Yeah, it's a mouthful. <laughs> so this is beyond the jargon, and I feel like a lot of the time people have project names that aren't too um, inaccessible, but you really have to break it down for us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So um, I guess basically the, the user-constrained algorithms part is just a, um, a computer program that takes into account consumer comfort constraints when we're controlling their appliances in these demand response programs. Now, demand response is probably another one that's not entirely accessible. It's starting to become more common, which is a great thing. But um, basically what it is is it's real-time control of electrical loads Mm -hmm. so that rather than responding by shifting the generation resources that our utilities that BC Hydro, for instance, has, we're going to shift other loads that we can actually defer to more opportune times. Hmm. Okay, so using electricity... Like at not peak times to... Yeah, that's a, a great example of a demand response program would be okay. peak shaving or load shifting. Um, and then I'm, I'm looking at some sort of shorter time duration applications of that, hmm. um, where generally speaking, the electrical system runs in three different time scales for the um, deployment of generation resources. Okay. There's day ahead planning, which is done on an hourly basis, and that's where the bulk of the electricity comes from. And then there's what's called uh, load-following resources, which are in a 30-minute to 15-minute time frame, depending on the uh, jurisdiction. And then there's your regulating reserve um, resources, and those happen around the 5-minute to 1-minute time frame. And all of those things work together to make sure that when you turn on the light switch in your home, the electricity is ready and available for the light to turn on. Rather than it all being drained when everybody comes home at 5 o'clock. Exactly. I see. Okay. Are you looking at making this for individual appliances? Or is this centered on the appliance using electricity or on delivering the electricity to the appliance? Um, I guess more so on the appliance using the electricity itself. Okay. And so we're changing the actual usage patterns for appliances. Um, this is already happening at the large scale um, with some commercial and industrial clients. Um, there's a company called Imbala that does stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm allowed to use company names. I don't work for them. It's not a shout-out. It's just an interesting company. Mm-hmm. Um, so they... Um, shift large like motors and pumps and those have a very big response of course right because they're on the um, multiple megawatt even or sorry kilowatt multiple megawatt um, power consumption requirements they would be the equivalent of you know a a large number of homes 100 homes could equal one of these pumps Mm -hmm. Um, so what i'm looking at then is doing the same program but at the residential level the problem with that is that the loads are so small that one person's you know even a home heat pump that's used for heating your house it might have a rating in the four to five kilowatt range, which would be um, the same as, well, 
Jeez, lots of light bulbs. Um, <laughs> but um, it's not big enough for the electrical utilities to really get a benefit from that load. So what I have to do is I have to aggregate a number of residential loads. So um, my simulations are based on communities of 1,500 homes, mm-hmm. and we treat all 1,500 homes grouped together with the control algorithms that we're developing as one virtual generator that can then contribute virtual generation um, into the grid. Huh. So um, when you're doing these studies, are you actually working with actual homes? Are you just making these sort of hypothetical algorithms to say this is what we think? Yeah. Um, For now, it's all uh, uh, Mm simulation-based simply because it is extremely invasive um, when we're testing things and um, driving the the populations to the limits to see what they can do. Mm -hmm. We don't want to do that in your home because it – well, we do have user comfort constraints. Um, we haven't tested them fully, and we want to make sure that they work well in theory before we roll them out. Um, my understanding is that there are some trial projects that are going on, um, mostly in California, where um, hmm. you know, electricity prices are so high, people are more willing to try these things right now, and there's money to be made by uh, implementing these programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, again, sort of the twist or the extension that I'm working on is um, addressing some of the limited knowledge scenarios. So um, you have certain people that, uh, you know, well, there's, there's been smart meter holdouts, and they didn't want a smart meter, let alone a smart controller that tells the utility the particular state their home is at, what temperature it's at, and how it's changing in real time during the day, or the other loads that I'm using um, right now in my simulations is electric vehicle charging. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, would provide a lot of information about whether you're at home or away. Um, so what we're doing is we're looking at whether we can control those loads that don't want to report state information based on a sampling from a larger population or a subset of that population mm-hmm. and extrapolating the state data from the sampled subset who is willing to offer the information to us and applying the control to those um, people that don't want to have that information distributed. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I haven't tripped over my explanation there. <laughs> I think it's... Uh, when you started doing this, I mean, the, the smart meter thing has been in the news for a while and the resistance to it. So did you anticipate those, you know, dealing with sort of, a, I don't know, a sensitive way of um, of gathering information from people? Did that provi- or make any roadblocks for you while you were doing this? Uh, on the contrary, it sort of provided the reason for my research. Um, if it wasn't for that, if everyone was willing to provide the information about their state loads and what their electrical appliances were doing in real time, it would make the control of these demand response programs really easy. So that was what sort of initially got us thinking about using some of these limited control limited knowledge control scenarios, rather. Mm. Um, And then as sort of a takeoff from that, we also said, well, these two-way communicating hysteresis controllers is what we use to control the loads, and um, they're going to be more expensive than a simple receiver. So based on some of the preliminary results, we're not seeing large increases in the error of the response when we start adding limited information or removing the people reporting states. Um, and as a result, we could minimize some of the costs of the system by outfitting a small subset of the population with a receiver-only module. So huh. sort of a, a spin-off benefit to addressing the uh, the privacy concerns that arose from smart meter holdouts. Huh. What... Um what is sort of like the the outcome then that you hope for this research? How would it change our day-to-day lives? Would it change our day-to-day lives in any way that we would notice? Or would it just sort of make electrical consumption and delivery smoother in general? Yeah, hopefully the only everyday life thing that you would notice is that electrical rate increases would not happen as frequently. Hmm. Um, it just makes it easier for the utilities. They can use your load um, as a resource to help them 
control the distribution and the uh, allotment of electricity. Hmm. Um, The user comfort constraints are maintained. So, you know, even though we're adjusting your home heat pumps temperature settings, it's only by a half a degree Celsius either direction. And generally speaking, it's uh, an, an imperceptible change to... Oh. normal humans. So. Oh, so that's uh, so that's part of what this would do is that it could change the temperature slightly? Exactly. That's oh, okay. how we implement this control. Otherwise, you know, as soon as you reach your lower set point temperature, your thermostat will automatically kick on. Yeah. So if we're able to defer that just ever so slightly by half a degree Celsius, again, up or down, we can dictate when that appliance will turn on or off and make sure that it's switching into the desired state for the utility or the demand response aggregator. Um, at an opportune time. Oh, so maybe uh, less consumption while people are out, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I've approached it with um, two different sort of controller targets in my uh, simulations. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is providing the uh, the ancillary services to the electrical markets that are already currently being met by things like gas turbine generators. And they're the, um, the resources that can just really quickly ramp up or down their generation in response to changes in load. Mm -hmm. So we're able to provide this virtual generation to provide the same benefits to the grid, and we could sell that power to electrical utility operators. Mm -hmm. Um, The second scenario that I've looked at is smoothing the... um, wind power generation injections into the grid. Um, One of the big problems with renewable energy right now is it is highly variable. So you never know when you're going to have electricity. We can predict it with some certainty, but there's still too much uncertainty for the uh, time steps that the electrical market operates in. Is that sort of based on like weather things, like whether sunny for solar power, windy for... Yeah, uh, wind generation. It, right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, when the wind is blowing really fast, you're generating a lot of power, but then it'll suddenly stop or slow down, and your generation profile will change in response to that. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, you know, the utilities would have to do something and provide some sort of an additional generation or take offline generation to add or subtract from that deficit and mm-hmm. maintain the uh, steady electrical supply. But what we can do is actually use the loads in real time using this demand response program to effectively make the uh, – we smooth the wind generation profile. We make it more more smooth and better, easier to integrate with the electrical grid. Hmm. And that's based on – so the algorithms that you're doing, does, uh, does it help you predict? How does it smooth it out? Um, by acting as a virtual generator. Oh, right. So okay. what will happen is our load community, if the wind starts to blow really quickly – we will all of a sudden increase consumption. We'll turn more home heating appliances on. We'll initiate charging of more electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. And as a result, if we you know, increase the generation from a wind turbine or a wind farm by 10 kilowatts, then we can increase the consumption and use up that 10 kilowatts instead of wasting it. Sometimes right. it'll just be curtailed and disposed of. <laughs> and conversely, if the wind has been blowing very steadily, very fast, and it quickly drops off, um, what we can do is we can also take, uh, again, a collection of loads and we'll um, disable the electric vehicle charging and we'll turn the temperature on the thermostats down and we'll reduce the electrical consumption by an equivalent amount to the uh, wind mm-hmm. generation drop or the change in wind the- delta wind generation, essentially. Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, it's. I think, uh, I don't know, growing up out here, uh, I take electricity for granted, like absolutely. Occasionally when there's a big storm, there's like a, a blackout or something, but... Yeah. Generally, I don't know. We don't. I don't think that much about it. We had Louis the lightning bulb in, a, um, in elementary school telling us to conserve electricity. I think most people try to do that, but um, it's interesting to think about uh, the consumption and what goes into, I guess, regulating um, like consumption of it. Why are you, Why are you interested in this? How did you start uh, researching it? Oh man, that's that's a good question. I don't have an answer prepared for that. <laughs> um, 
I, I don't know. It was just something that, um, you know, I've always been interested in conservation and trying to be as environmentally friendly as I can. I, you know, originally came from Calgary and I've worked in oil and gas for a number of years. And um, I wanted to, to do something, you know, a little bit nicer for the environment and start, you know, taking ownership of some of it. And I uh, just started talking with uh, my supervisor, Dr. Curran Crawford. Mm-hmm. And um, he does a lot of research in this area and uh, had an opening for another researcher to do a master's project. And we slowly started dancing around the electrical grid and what's going on, what areas of research I could focus on and um, settled on this. It seemed like it was something that when I learned about demand response, I couldn't believe we weren't doing it yet. Hmm. And I wanted to know why. And some of the problems that came up were these privacy concerns and costs. And I thought, well, what if we address them in this way? Yeah. So, yeah, he uh, he steered me in the direction. And it, we sort of decided at the same time that, yeah, this is a really good con- contribution to the field and it'll work. Huh. So. Did you do your degree, uh, your undergrad at UVic or did you do it in Calgary? I did it at UVic mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I did a welding engineering technology diploma in Calgary, then oh, worked yeah. in oil and gas for three years and decided to come back and pursue a bachelor's of engineering. Mm-hmm. Um I think what you said is very interesting when you're talking about working in oil gas in Alberta and then coming back and wanting to do um, something, you know, positive for the environment and conservation, which is actually something I've heard from a lot of people who go and work in Alberta for a while um, and come back to Victoria and start working on that kind of thing. Uh, do you know other people that are doing that kind of thing? or? Um. I probably in passing, I know of a few. There's no one that I can, you know, specifically say, oh, yeah, Joe's doing the same thing as me and we're in the same boat. Um but, you know, I, I definitely know a lot of people that I've worked with in oil and gas either preferentially will choose projects within oil and gas that, you know, provide benefits that are tangible to the environment, even though you are still extracting oil and gas. You know, mm-hmm. right now it's still one of our largest energy resources, um, but at least they're sort of working as they can to make as many improvements as they can within those constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I can't think of anyone in particular. Yeah, it seems like you know it's a, a great place to gain experience, especially if you're going into engineering or other things like that. Um, yeah, and it's such a, a lucrative employer for people out here on the coast too. Do you think that your work there has informed your studies at the university or made it easier for you to maybe grasp certain things? I'm just interested, yeah, in that practical experience. Yeah, yeah uh, definitely. Um, I had some time when I actually did a co-op with uh, one of the large oil and gas producers in Calgary, and um, I was involved in working with uh, two large gas turbine generators that they use both to produce electricity and steam for um, in-situ oil extraction. And um, we worked both to improve the efficiency and uh, resolve a couple of um, issues with uh, oils getting leaked out into the environment. And it was a really neat opportunity where I got to sort of see the uh, the nuts and bolts of how that works and how they're also providing energy to, uh, you know, the town of Cold Lake. And they're not just an oil and gas company, they're an electrical provider too. And they were, uh, you know, concerned about maintaining their uh, their environmental image. And they were definitely big on efficiency improvements, both in terms of saving money and in terms of um, just being more green and reducing their footprint as best they can. Hmm. Um, so you're in the last final stages of finishing your master's, is that right? You're in the writing process phase right now? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> How's it going? Is it different? Like, how much writing is involved? Or is it a lot of equations and explanations of equations and graphs and things like that? Uh, yeah. I'm clearly such above. a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of texts, lots of equations, and lots of figures and diagrams. Um, probably also the, the most time-consuming part right now is running my actual simulations. Mm. Um, right now, I think a, a 24-hour simulation for 
1,500 homes takes in the neighborhood of 17 minutes. And, of course, you know, I'm running Which multiple scenarios. Which is not scenarios. that long, you know, when you think about the number of homes and stuff. That's pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. And it has to be pretty quick so that we can actually do real-time control. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bulk of the time is the actual simulations that are modeling the homes, not the control algorithms, which is another good part. Mm. But, uh, yeah, lots of sitting down and starting the computer and then going away for a few minutes and reading up on papers so that I've got what I need to say in my mind, right? <laughs> How many times do you have to run these simulations? Oh, lots. Um, <laughs> every time we change something, every time we change the target trajectory that we're trying to achieve, the populations that we're um, simulating. So, and again, I need to run multiple populations. They're all um, randomly generated from uh, statistical data mm-hmm. for the um, the properties of the home heating equipment and the thermodynamic parameters that are involved in single-family houses, as well as the electric vehicle charging. So each time we redo the uh, the models just to make sure that you know one isn't an anomaly and it's working properly because they're all the exact same size we've made sure that the populations are homogenous um, and as a result we uh, run you know oh I've probably run over a thousand simulations so far since wow. I started writing it's a lot of simulations <laughs> so yeah. did you have to um, make the equations from scratch are you building on something that uh was pre-existing um so i'm I'm building on a previous master's student's work uh, Mm -hmm. simon parkinson and uh, he did um, demand response it was a self-regulating demand response um, with full information um, using the same loads so i've based my research off of his work but i've had to completely rewrite my own equations Um, Mm -hmm. unfortunately he didn't have anything to left from when he did his research in terms of the actual programs. So I've just been reading his thesis and rebuilding the models and then uh, building my own algorithms and controllers to add the limited information controller on top. Hmm. That sounds like it's sort of outside of the realm of mechanical engineering a little bit. Like, do you have to know about computer science to be able to write this stuff or math? Um, How does that work? Yeah, it was a trial by fire, learning Mm -hmm. how to uh, do all of the coding and programming in MATLAB and then validating it and comparing the uh, thermodynamic equations to the results that we were seeing. So it was it was a really interesting sort of marriage between electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, and computer science. Hmm. Um, have there been any, is there, was there any point where you felt like you hit a wall and you were just not getting anywhere, or has it been a fairly smooth project? It's fairly smooth, at least as smooth as, I think, postgraduate or graduate degrees can be. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there's always hiccups and there was a lot of time spent figuring out exactly what to do. You know, mm. uh, when we started, we wanted to solve all of the problems of the electrical grid in the world and sort of had to narrow it down and whittle away something until we found a, a niche that was interesting enough and relevant enough that I was engaged, but it wasn't going to take eight years. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long have you been working on it now? Uh, just coming up on three years. Oh, wow. But uh, I've taken on a lot of side projects and extra work associated with uh, the university um, and mm. actually doing some work with a, a fish farm up island with oh, the yeah. Canadian Integrated Multitrophic Aquaculture Network. Oh. We're designing a renewable energy system for this fish farm so that they can provide a lot of their power needs off-grid. And so as a result, that's sort of gotten in the way of some of the thesis, thesis research. But uh, it's been really exciting stuff and really interesting. So. How, are you, how are you doing that with them? So off-grid, so they don't have to use BC Hydro to generate power for their fish farm? Yeah, exactly. Well, right now they um, they have they rely on uh, diesel genset. They don't have mm-hmm. a connection to BC Hydro. They're so far away. They're up in uh, Cayucat Sound, which is in the northwest corner of the island uh, out on the Pacific Ocean side. 
Diesel genset is diesel generators? Uh, yes, yeah, okay, diesel yeah. generator, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um it makes it a little more justifiable to put in renewable energy because you've got to pay for the cost of the diesel as well as shipping it out there. So mm-hmm. electrical costs up there are quite high. Um yeah, and it was just a, a collaboration uh, with Simtan and uh we wanted to see what we could do to mitigate greenhouse gas uh, consumption. And uh, the uh, the fish farm operator up there, um, he's a Sea Vision group, and um, he's been committed to minimizing the ecological and the environmental impact of his fish farm. So. Hmm. Um- yeah, that's kind of exciting. Did that come up as uh, being part of the university and that, did that, those kind of projects sort of arise and when you're in this field, I guess? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, again, my supervisor, Dr. Crawford, was involved in this SimTan network and um, had this need and I had a bit of knowledge in the area and the interest, I guess, and desire to get more. And so I, I jumped on the opportunity and hmm. have been sort of working on that part time for the last three years as well. Hmm. Um, let's go back a little bit to your your actual <laughs> master's project, and you're talking about um, similar uh, stuff happening in California, similar research. Uh, do you talk to the people that are doing that research in California or draw on what they're doing at all? Um, yeah, I haven't spoken directly with many or any of them doing this research, um, but a lot of papers that have been published in the area and uh, preliminary study results. Uh, as far as I know, a lot of them are still in the early phases, and unfortunately a lot of the data is confidential. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's sometimes like pulling teeth getting information out of these utility operators, but sometimes they're really forthright and, and easygoing. You, know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you never know which way it's going to go, but definitely drawing on a lot of the, uh, the initial results of some pilot projects that have been going on. Hmm. Um, once you're finished, is, uh, do you give this information to somebody to do something with how, what happens there? Because it sounds like it's very practical, useful information, and it doesn't, you don't want it really just on the shelves of academia forever or something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm hoping to write a couple of papers that will be in some uh, IEEE journals and things like that to mm-hmm. sort of get the word out. And um, there's already a number of papers that are in very similar areas in those journals. So the uh, the word is getting out in academia and definitely I think the uh, right now from what I've seen, one of the stakeholders that seems really committed to implementing some of these uh, demand response programs um, is the uh, electric vehicle, um, both producers and uh, Electric Mobility Canada and um, I guess support groups for electric vehicles or promotional groups hmm. um, simply because there's a lot of concern about the increased load that all of these electric vehicles are going to impart on the electrical grid. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, people sometimes miss sight of the fact that it's also a, a very valuable resource for the electrical grid hmm. if we implement some of these demand response programs. Hmm. Uh, what do you hope to do once you're finished? Uh, definitely, I'd like to stay in the renewable energy industry. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, where I'll end up, I'm not sure. Uh, talking about possibly doing some work with uh, some uh, novel generation companies that are coming up with new to- technologies, but uh, I don't know. Right now, I've been really focused on head down, getting the thesis done, and mm-hmm. then uh, start looking around for what's available. Mm-hmm. Are you interested in going on and uh, pursuing something on like a practical side, or do you want to continue researching and pursue like a PhD or something? I definitely want to get into industry at this point. Right. Um, yeah, I've I've been in school now for I think six years straight, doing the undergrad to the graduate degree, mm-hmm. and uh, ready to get some practical experience under my belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe down the road, I'd really like to do a, a you know an industry sponsored PhD or something like that, oh, something yeah. that's t- tied to a practical project. But hmm. that's interesting. So. Um, like uh, who, your employer would pay you to like research and do research and development for them, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah, or they would have you know some 
research topic that they need to get done and they do um there's i think industry scholarships within circ that you can get that'll hmm. also help to fund phd research for employees of companies or for strategic alliances with with companies hmm. oh so uh when do you hope to be finished I keep telling everyone that I'm going to have a draft of the thesis in by Sunday this week. Whoa. Yeah. So, yeah. And are you going to do it? Yeah, it's going to happen. There's right. going to be, yeah, at least to my supervisor, and then I'll get comments from him. And uh, hoping to defend before the Christmas holidays, but we're cutting it down to the wire at this point. Right. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you, and thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun. All right. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you want to listen again, go to our website, cfuv.uvic.ca, and click on the Listen tab.